There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Atcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing a senior colleague, psychiatrist, Dr. Shakir Salduka. Shakir is someone I've had the privilege of knowing for many years, so it's a real pleasure to host him on the podcast to discuss today's topic, which relates to substance abuse in psychiatry and looking at the relationship between substance abuse and psychiatric disorders. Now, Shakir is a psychiatrist in private practice in Durban, and he has a special interest in pain and substance abuse. Shakir, welcome, and thank you for making the time to join me in discussing an issue that uh, probably sends many psychiatrists running for the hills. I know that substance abuse is, is not easy, and it's not an easy issue to grapple with clinically. So one of the initial motivations for inviting you was because of a special project that you've been involved with in the past and may still be involved with in KZN in Durban. But we're going to get to that in a minute. I just want to make a few personal observations to kind of set the scene. I mean, my initial exposure to substance abuse and psychiatry goes way back to when I was what we used to call a houseman back in the mid-80s. Everybody's called interns now. And we would get many patients coming into the acute admission ward. I was doing my rotation in internal medicine with the diagnosis toxic psychosis. So this was my first introduction to psychosis within the context usually of cannabis use, usually a schizophrenic patient who'd been using cannabis. Possibly they were non-compliant on medication. Possibly the two, two were linked. So that was cannabis. And then we used to get the DTs coming in, the delirium tremens, where people were withdrawing from alcohol, they'd be delirious. And obviously, alcohol withdrawal can be a pretty serious medical emergency with the uh, emergence of, of seizures. So between cannabis and alcohol, I started to get my first exposure to the relationship between substances and psychopathology. And so we fast forward to 2013, the DSM-5 comes out, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth version, and we've got this category of substance-related and addictive disorders, just to note that the addictive disorder in question is gambling, so we're not going to go there. But around the substances, I mean, there are 10 separate classes of drugs that are associated with disorders, and obviously there are a whole host of actual drugs within the uh, categories, and Aside from substance-related disorders, then we get the substance use conditions and substance-induced. And, of course, one of the big ones are the opioids, and that's what I really want to start focusing on. But also just to mention that psychiatry as a discipline has now moved to creating, certainly in this country, and I think it's an international trend, a subspecialist category of psychiatrists who specialize in addiction psychiatry. And so this clearly reflects the evolution of our knowledge and of our understanding and how we move forward to, to address the needs. So that's just some kind of background. So Shikir, what are your, what are your thoughts after that somewhat lengthy background that I've provided? Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, I think you've kind of put it in a, in, a, in an appropriate nutshell. Um, most of us, 
sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, encounter substances, whether you're a general practitioner, psychiatrist, even surgeons, physicians, and so on. So it's a, it's a kind of a hugely prevalent problem in society, not just in medicine. Yes. So for me, it became an issue um, with pain about 15 years ago when I was seeing more and more patients that were dependent on painkillers and literally accepted it as a norm to take codeine-containing painkillers like Stopane, Mypridol, Ascadol, Sindol, every day of their lives for years and years and years. And when we were trained and taught in psychiatry, the DSM, you know, three, four, and so on, mm. there was always a proviso in the absence of the substance. So you cannot diagnose anything, depression, anxiety, psychosis, schizophrenia, in the presence of a substance. So it kind of, you know, it, it, it rang a bell for me, and I, and I thought, well, these people live on painkillers, which is codeine, and as you know, codeine only works when it becomes morphine. It gets converted to morphine in, in, in your gastrointestinal tract. And the chemical name of heroin is dimorphine. So it's very closely related to morphine. So basically here we have people taking heroin every day, essentially, and then presenting with mood disorders and sleep disorders and anxiety disorders and cognitive problems. And that's how my interest goes speak with pain. You know, why are these people living on painkillers? Where does the pain come from? Why can't the clever doctors like the surgeons and physicians and so on fix this problem and so on. And then it turned out to be a gray area crossover between pain management and substances. And that's where we, that's where I ended up now, right. you know, managing patients primarily for pain, but ultimately for a dependency on a very habit-forming substance. So the relationship between pain and psychiatric illness, because the question really is, were there originally psychiatric conditions that were not diagnosed and not understood to be that, but for whatever reason were associated with pain, be it physical, which has led to the misuse or excessive use, which would ultimately be misuse of codeine and codeine-related products. So the question I'm asking is, is whether, in fact, the beginning of pain assessment begins with understanding the possibility of either not diagnosed or misdiagnosed underlying psychiatric illness. So, interestingly enough, there's been a, a study that's come out of the States about, I think it was, it was the last APA that was running as a face-to-face one, which was probably 2018, I think, 2019, that ties in a lot of chronic pain and psychological and psychiatric. Um, and I think it's important to be a bit more clear about the effects of not just our genetic uh, predisposition, but also the you know events that happened early on in people's lives, the early trauma. Right. And they found 83% of people with chronic pain syndrome had early childhood trauma. Interesting. Now, you know, that applies to many other psychiatric conditions like mood disorders, personality disorders, and substance use disorders, where the common factor is early childhood trauma. They refer to it specifically as sensory deprivation. But I mean, it could have been anything from a relative in the family that was constantly ill and needed hospitalization and medical care to the person themselves, you know, having chronic physical problems from an early age that predisposes them to this chronic pain syndrome. And there's been many theories 
processes about why that's the case. And one of them that for me resonates quite well is the one that increases neural tone in young people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, generally, if you have something that increases your excitability and sensitivity and frequency at which the relevant circuits are functioning in your brain, you're going to be more prone to anxiety. You're going to be more prone to physical pain. You're going to be more prone to being affected by or reacting to things around you. And that's often referred to as an epigenetic uh, thing, you know, that if you have a genetic predisposition and you have childhood trauma, then that triggers your predisposing genetic uh, issue. So I think it's all tied up with, you know, there's a lot of speculation and I think there's more data needed and genetics is now a huge thing. Epigenetics is a huge thing in research as is early, you know, we often talk about the first thousand days of life, which is, you know, up to about three years or so, where so much of the rest of our lives is determined. So pain is no exception. And neither is dependency and addiction. And and for me, the most common psychiatric comorbidity with these conditions is anxiety. So the anxiety disorder fits in more with pain and dependency than any other psychiatric disorder. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, I've got my own thoughts on that based on clinical experience working with patients with generalized anxiety disorder, for example, people who are just generally more anxious than they need to be, who have multiple concerns about lots of things which they worry about all the time, which kind of overwhelm them, often presenting or experiencing muscle tension, shoulders, neck, which then becomes headache. And then we see the constant use of codeine-based products. And what you've really got is an underlying anxiety disorder manifesting with misuse of substances, which when you get down to it is ultimately driven by the anxiety, which is where potentially the treatment should lie. So certainly in my clinical practice, I've experienced that uh, in numerous of my patients, and I see that as as, as a significant issue. Is that kind of what you are referring to? That's exactly what I'm saying. And in fact, if you think about all the chronic pain syndromes that are commonly diagnosed, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic pelvic congestion, tension type headaches, they all arise from a similar pathophysiology of high muscle tone, increased neural activity. It's difficult for us because the brain is so complicated and and its interaction with the body and the nervous system is your connection between your brain and your body, because we don't understand that connection entirely, you know, there's been things about cortisol and stress, but just general hypersensitization, just increased neural activity. You know, now they do functional brain imaging, spec scans, PET scans, and you have areas of high activity and areas of low activity. These patients generally have an area of overactivity in their limbic system and in their frontal vortices. So, yes, I think that ties in with this general feeling that these are patients who are more, their general tone, neural and muscular, is higher than the average population. So the muscle tone is a bit higher, which means they generally live with a bit of tension, muscle tension, and that applies to their somatic, I mean, to their smooth muscle, like the bowel and the uterus and so on where you can get uh, irritable bowel syndromes and things like that, reacting to the same level of anxiety and, and reactivity to the environment. So yes, I mean, that's exactly what I see in my pain clinic, is these patients who are not necessarily clinically anxious. In other words, they're not always 
like a PTSD or an OCD or a panic disorder. Sure. But they're just these perfectionists. They're these controlling. They need to be in control of what's happening. They cannot, you know, they prepare for well in advance. So not always clinically gen- generalized anxiety, but even slightly subclinical GAD also are highly prone to, to chronic pain. And the other aspect, the flip side of that, is the codeine in the painkillers is anxiolytic. So not only does it take away that immediate sensation of pain, it also relieves that underlying anxiety which a lot of them don't realize they have. And that's how the dependency forms, more because they're treating the underlying anxiety than the actual physical pain. Well, you see, I mean, that sort of speaks to the issue of personality. An underlying personality. I've, I've seen an emerging kind of, I wouldn't say it's a consensus, but emerging research that is looking at certain types of personalities. So what we would call the cluster C personalities, your avoidant, your dependent, your obsessive compulsive, perfectionistic type of personality where you have that tendency towards controlling and wanting to be in control or avoiding conflict or being very sensitive to what people think about you. So there's a whole group of personalities that fit into the so-called cluster C personalities, which may seemingly predispose towards the experience of chronic pain. I'm not sure if that's what you've seen. Certainly a large chunk of them fall into that obsessive compulsive personality type. Yes. Very tightly wound, very internalized people that are almost alexithymic. They, they cannot handle emotion. But there's another category that also, unfortunately, the opposite of these are the histrionic and the borderline type of person that also presents with chronic pain, but on a different psychodynamic basis. You know, their trauma comes from post-traumatic stress stuff. Right. And the histrionic patients are often the ones that somatize a lot of their psychic problems. So, you know, it does span different types of personality. But, you know, the, the perfectionist, the tightly wound person who's often got tension, headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, is in and out of doctor's rooms, that's a very common group that we see in, um, in the clinic. So certainly, I mean, there's a definite role in the management of substance-related problems for psychiatry and understanding not just the nature of the substance misuse or substance-related problems, either from withdrawal or intoxication, but in terms of the relationship with potential underlying psychiatric illness that should be not forgotten and should be the focus of intervention, aside from dealing with the substances themselves, but looking at the link between the two. Exactly. And and in pain management, the substance element of pain is very small in terms of treatment, amount of time given to treatment. The bigger aspect is breaking the cycle of physical pain and painkillers, and then going into the underlying reason as to why it happened in the first place and addressing that. And usually these things go back to childhood and adolescence and so on. So it's quite a, you know, it's quite a lot of unpacking that needs to be done to get to the basis of it. So it's a multidisciplinary, multimodal approach with psychology, exercise, uh, medication, you know, regular follow-ups and, and so on. It's a complicated treatment program. And as long as they stay in it, they do extremely well in terms of their pain. So the addiction where pain is concerned for me personally, is not that huge a problem. Right. It's almost, I don't know if you, if you 
the way that they used to call this in the opiate crisis in America when, when the OxyContin was being flouted by the reps to all the GPs. They were saying it's not addictive and that pain it causes a pseudo-addiction. They created the term pseudo-addiction. Oh. And in that case, obviously, it wasn't the case because it's a clear-cut addiction. Well, I mean, if you go to the States, I mean, going back to 2019, 50,000 deaths from opioids involved. Oh, it's gone up. It's gone up since then. So, I mean, certainly codeine is a concern and an issue. There's a 2018 study that was comparing purchasing of codeine-containing products weekly. In Ireland, it was 6% of consumers, England 16 South Africa 13% of pharmacy customers are purchasing codeine prescribed or codeine containing products on a regular basis. And that's a conservative number because it's not registered and with one of the last few countries in the world you can get codeine without prescription over the counter. So it's way, way under reported. So should we be sending a message that says to folk who are finding themselves in that situation to what extent they will acknowledge it as a problem or understand that it is a problem because it's potentially doing something for them. But should we be sending a message that if this is your situation, if this is what is happening, this is something that needs to be addressed and looked at and not in a prejudicial way that you're a substance abuser, but you are engaging in a certain kind of behavior, taking of substances, which could be prejudicial to your health ultimately. And there are potentially things that could be looked at in a different way that might take you away from that towards something which is more appropriate. That's the focus that we had at PsychMG and TASOP at one stage where we were trying to increase awareness. But the problem is so endemic in South Africa. It is literally the elephant in the room when it comes to substances because a lot of people talk about cocaine and, and alcohol and cannabis. But opiates, in my opinion, is probably bigger than all of them because it's so subterranean and it's all these housewives, you know, middle class, lower middle class, people who are stressed out that rely on these tablets just to get through a day. So it's a really huge problem in South Africa. And I think it comes back to, I remember attending a, uh, a psychiatry forum in 2018 where you were speaking about this very issue. And I remember you made a very specific statement in relation to chronic pain where you said that, um, quote, what I wrote in terms of how I understood what you'd said, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that the excessive use of codeine is akin to heroin use. And I think that was quite a quite a stark statement because I think it was putting codeine firmly in that group, which is where it belongs, actually, because it is one of the one of the uh, opiates. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's closely linked pharmacologically to, to heroin because it becomes morphine on metabolism, and it doesn't work as codeine. Codeine's got no benefit. It's a synthetic product that has to be broken down into morphine okay. before it's actually active. And morphine is a close cousin because the chemical name of heroin is diamorphine. So it's literally like two molecules of morphine, you know, joined in a chemical structure to form heroin. So it is very closely related. And I've had patients in the clinic, you know, with tolerance. Yes. You're meant to take two, say, Acrodol or Stopain at a time. They take eight or ten because they've developed tolerance. And if you add 10 milligrams of codeine per tablet and you come up to 100 milligrams of codeine, it equates to a certain, a certain quantity of heroin eventually in terms of its effect on your sense of well-being which is the addictive, the dopamine-based uh, reaction in the brain. Which I think is really interesting because 
we don't necessarily go from codeine to heroin when we think of codeine. Yeah. And so I think what we're doing is we're making a very stark, real connection between the two agents, which brings me to this program that you initiated during the beginning of lockdown, so we're going back to early 2020, of heroin detoxification amongst the homeless, which I found fascinating because not just in terms of what you were doing, which I thought was really novel and brave, but what I found interesting was that there was a significant emergence once you had gotten them off the heroin of underlying psychiatric illness, but I don't want to preempt. Do you want to give us just a basic background to the program and your motivation and, and some of the outcomes, which speaks to the article that you wrote for South African Psychiatry back in early 2020? Sure. So with obviously COVID in the beginning of 2020 um, and the introduction of the lockdown, there was a population of people that were going to become problematic in terms of movement. And that was the homeless people. Right. Now, in KZN, the homeless people are in excess of 70% users of uh, substances. And the one that's most common is Wunga. Wunga is a cheap version of heroin, which has some uh, opiates in it, but also has a couple of other things mixed into it to create bulk and volume and make it cheaper. So it's got a dirty drug, but the predominant substances are opiates. And the problem with opiates that are short-acting and have a rapid onset like heroin is they're probably the most difficult drug to detoxify someone from because the withdrawals are so horrific. Besides the neurological risk factors of seizures, they become almost feral. You know, they become animalistic when they're withdrawing. So it's not something they could have done by just introducing a lockdown and leaving it unchecked. So fortunately, we had quite a progressive deputy mayor at the time, Belinda Scott, who got hold of a professor, Monique Marks, who's at the DUT and is involved in urban futures, you know, city issues. I knew Belinda through, you know, other chains, and she asked me to, to join the group. So it was myself and Monique Marks, and there was a U.S.-based aid agency that, teamed up to do this. And essentially, with the assistance of the police and the city, we gathered all the people off the street, put them in various shelters around Durban, including Moses Mabida and so on. And then the whole process of managing their withdrawals, because obviously now their, their supply was cut off. Right. And there were many ways that we could have done this, but the most cost-effective and easiest was the use of methadone. Right. And, you know, it's a long story that goes into the options to methadone, but methadone was what what we chose to do. And together with that, you know, with methadone, we needed some other medications in terms of insomnia and preventing seizures and so on. So we had some medication plus the methadone. Sorry, just to be clear. So the methadone is your opioid substitution treatment, the OST. Methadone is a long acting. So the difference between codeine or heroin or morphine and methadone is the, is the duration of action. It's a close to 24-hour half-life, which means that it's very easy to come off something with a longer half-life than it is in a shorter half-life drug. So we used methadone as a substitution. Obviously, the clients that were in the program had a choice. They could decide to go cold turkey and what they call the arosta, which is a 
the withdrawal symptoms that you know feels like their skin's being uh, peeled off and their stomachs diarrhea and vomiting and sweating and some of them actually have cardiac side effects but majority of patients opted to do the program so at one stage we had in excess of i think it was close to 340 patients that we were detoxing on three sites in Durban with methadone and an additional uh, medication it was my introduction to harm reduction as well because as you said you know substance use is, is so abstinence based that we flooded we don't think about any other options but this issue of harm reduction actually makes a lot of sense in many societies and groupings and like this particular group of homeless people with opiate addiction harm reduction which which espouses this unconditional positive regard and and you know not the vilification of of people as being drug addicts and and failures and, and you know problems in society but rather look at them and look at why they use a lot of what they do and mainly with with heroin they take it because they don't want to get withdrawal that's an interesting one we we i mean that's the motivation because i think it's always about what is the motivation and it's to avoid withdrawal which i think is really fascinating so you were that's able the, that's the one with wonga it's just to avoid arosta they smoke more wonga because the moment they start getting their arosta or the withdrawal they go crazy and you know it feels like they're dying so they just do anything to get more so did you find that ultimately you were able to wean this group of individuals off their heroin or the heroin based uh, product and move them forward in terms of understanding other aspects that needed to be dealt with for example emergent psychiatric conditions and kind of what has been the longer term outcome uh, regarding these particular individuals who were on the program to start with the clinic still running up until now the city has given us a building in one of its uh, older building that was dilapidated and we now done it up a little bit and it's now an ongoing methadone replacement program so a percentage and i don't know the exact figure now because it might have changed since i last checked but a percentage of people that were using so firstly the principle of harm reduction is to not insist on abstinence right but if you're going to use here's clean needles here's you know sanitary conditions under which you can come and use your drug uh, because they're looking at HIV and TB uh, you know as the major secondary outcomes of bad usage so they offer these services needle and syringe HIV testing TB testing at the clinic can i just jump in there because this yeah. this walks back to an experience i had in amsterdam back in the 80s i was living on a houseboat and there was another boat slightly up the canal where i would see lots of men going in and out and i was kind of curious as to what was going on there and so eventually i plucked up the courage to go and investigate and what i found was exactly what you are describing back in the 80s and the reason that they had started this program was because they noticed that a lot of their crime was linked to theft to get money to purchase drugs and so they intervened to say you know what we'll do we'll give you your drugs and so they cut crime through that and this just happened to coincide with the emergence of HIV so this kind of just predated it so the dutch were very progressive in in that instance so it's kind of interesting for me to say well 40 years later this is kind of where we're at here and this whole issue of the abstinence model versus harm reduction is i think a really interesting and progressive way of approaching the the problem yeah and harm reduction has been around forever and that's exactly what they do they take into account 
the macro systems involved, the crime, because the abstinence model, you know, from experience is notoriously unsuccessful. Right. The recidivism rates that we have are ridiculous. I mean, these people, you know, in and out of their like revolving door situation. So, you know, it's, it's a, a different way of looking at it. It's a very humane way of looking at it. It's taking into account an individual rather than a condition, looking at their background, their motivation, what, you know, a lot of the people that were homeless came from very good families at, at one stage. If we managed to reunite quite a number of them with their families once they were clean and, you know, off the drugs. So it's really, and I think it's something we need to be teaching our undergraduates as well, this option of harm reduction. I think that one of the reasons why I wanted to really speak about your program was because I think it is so important to understand that there is not one size fits all in terms of how one approaches and that whilst obviously abstinence has always been the kind of gold standard, it's not necessarily where we need to pitch all of our hopes and to kind of work with the person in terms of understanding where they're at and how we guide them towards a healthier life in general. Just a quick word on the issue of stigma. I think often when you talk about substance abuse and substance misuse, there's a sense of futility and the idea that you can ever recover or move on towards a more productive life tends to create a certain stigma towards individuals who have these kinds of problems. And I know that DSM specifically, DSM-5, has moved away from the use of the term addict and we're moving towards substance misuse or substance abuse rather. What are your thoughts in closing on, on this issue of, of stigma and the family member who's got a problem that you can see? How do we bring them to the table? So two kinds of issues there, and, and obviously very dense. We could have individual podcasts for each one. But just some brief sort of closing thoughts, Shakir. You know, interestingly, the reason I started the pain clinic separate from my practice is exactly that, was stigma. Right. Because a lot of times the physicians or the surgeons, people who had back surgery would be told by the doctors, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. You know, it's all in your head. Right. Go and see a psychiatrist. And immediately that switch off. So I started the pain clinic purely because it gave people a place to come to where they felt seen and heard and recognized and the stigma wasn't there. And it made a massive difference. They're quite happy to come to the pain clinic. Yes. But they will look left, right and hesitate before they come into my psychiatric practice. That's fascinating. So the stigma is a huge, huge issue. And yes. And, it, and it, can I tell you, Christopher, my issue is with our professionals, our colleagues. Yes. The stigma starts there. These guys have very little clue about the holistic approach. I didn't want to specifically go there, but it was going through my mind, and I think it's very important because I was going to ask you the question, which we don't necessarily have to answer now, is whether colleagues in other disciplines fully appreciate and grasp the requirement of a holistic approach to the patient in front of them. I think that very often specialists are very narrowly focused, and they really struggle to take a more holistic view. And so this is me punting psychiatry. That is our ethos. That is what we do. And so, Shakir, I just want to thank you for joining us. I mean, you know, substance abuse is a prevalent problem. It's a highly destructive one, both to the individual, loved ones, and society. And obviously beyond psychiatry, there are many competent and trained counselors, as well as dedicated facilities and organizations that deal with substance-related problems. Substance abuse may be a lifelong struggle, and whilst it may shape you, it need not define you. 
We've spoken about the problems. Now let's discuss the role of Adcock Ingram OTC as part of the solution in terms of the role that they are playing as part of the Coding Care Initiative. I'd now like to introduce David Bayava as our next guest. David is the chairperson of the South African Central Drug Authority. He's also an honorary lecturer and researcher in the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand. And he is involved with the Codeine Care Initiative, and he's going to be speaking to us on what that is. David, welcome. Thank you. Nice to have you on board. And as mentioned, you're going to be speaking about the Codeine Care Initiative, which is a multi-stakeholder initiative. Could you give us some background as to what this initiative entails, what your role is, and what your aim is with this initiative? Thank you very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to explain the Codeine Care Initiative to you and your listeners. Essentially, um, I would just like to correct one statement that I was the chairperson of the Central Drug Authority up until the beginning of this year, and I have now relinquished that post. But nevertheless, I still remain actively involved in substance abuse and substance abuse affairs. At the time when the Coding Care Initiative started, I was, I think, the president of the community pharmacy sector within the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa, and we were concerned about the fact that there was this abuse of prescription medicines as well as the Schedule II medicines, which included codeine and codeine containing preparations. And we decided that it was necessary in order for some proactive action to be taken in the best interest of looking after the patient who might not even have been aware that they were leading into a situation which could be a spiral downwards because of their dependence that was developing for codeine-containing preparations. And having recognized that, we decided that we were going to go out on an education campaign to make patients aware of the fact that they were taking more than what was meant to be taken of the prescription item or the codeine-containing preparation bought over the counter, which could lead, of course, then to the abuse and the misuse of that medication, which would finally land them up in a situation where they become totally dependent on it. And that is what we were trying to guard against and making them aware that their innocent use could be leading, as I said, to a dependence-producing situation. So initial, what we looked out to do was to put out as much information for patients to become aware of the fact that there is the potential, although it is available over the counter without a prescription, but for it also to be a potentially abusable substance and making them aware that they should be consciously aware of how much they are taking at all times. So I think what's very important is that, as with everything in medicine, the patient is at the core and patient wellness and obviously not wanting to do harm. What I'm understanding is that there was a very strong educational focus of the initiative. My next question would be, well, beyond education, was there a supportive element or were individuals who may be developing a problem linked or guided towards support, not just for them, but potentially also for their families? That was absolutely where the focus was. It wasn't about accusing people at any time of having already developed a problem, but making them aware, and at the same time, making the pharmacists who were party to the abuse potential by supplying them more than what they should, 
that there was a need for there to be a better control mechanism put into place. And that is what we were looking for, is identifying those patients who were at risk in the first place and then affording them the opportunity of making them aware that there is actually help available for them and that recognizing that medicine does not abuse the patient. The patient abuses the medicine. Right. And in order to overcome that problem, they need to be aware that there are other things that they should be paying attention to which are precipitating their propensity to take more than what they should be taking. Right. And that was the underlying problem that we needed to help them to identify. And that was all part of the education program, not only for the patient, but for the pharmacists as well. And more importantly, for the support system that they may have in order for those people to be able to support whatever it is that we were trying to initiate in the best interest of the patient. Well, I think that's very important that you've got a multifaceted approach involving different players, so to speak. So from the patient to the family to the professionals, which I think is critical. My final question is, where is the initiative at? Is it ongoing? And what are your strategies and plans moving forward? So essentially, what started off as the coding care initiative was aimed at the coding containing preparations. But what we've realized now is that it wasn't codeine that was the problem. As I said, it's not the medicine that abuses the patient. It's the patient or the person who abuses the medication. And even if we had to do something like removing codeine from the market completely, it wouldn't be solving the problem because the underlying issue has still not been addressed. We need to look at not only the issue of the medication, which is the agent, we need to have a look at the host themselves and what is it that makes that person seek something that is going to change the way that they're feeling in the first place or recognizing that they appreciate the euphoric effect that they're getting from it because there's something else that they are lacking within their makeup or within the environment that they might find themselves in. And this just becomes a coping mechanism. Take away the codeine and it will be any of the other opiates that are available, even loperamide, which is an antidiarrheal. Being an opiate can also be abused. So the focus needs to change. It's not codeine that we are dealing with. We are dealing with these particular substances that have the potential to satisfy the craving or the need, which is the underlying problem of the actual host or the person that needs to be addressed and to point them in the right direction as to where they can get that help from and what type of help they're actually needing is where we then hand them over to the professional working within that particular field. But until we make them aware of the fact that there is this potential problem that is now that they might be finding themselves developing, that they need to take active participation in the controlling of that problem and doing and being participants in the protective mechanisms that are made available for them. So really, this is very much person-focused rather than simply substance-focused. And I think that what I'm understanding is that beyond a simple regulatory approach, one is looking at something much more holistic, something much more meaningful, and obviously, ultimately, I think, much more sustainable um, in the long term. Would I have understood that correctly? Absolutely. The cause and effect, in other words. Right. Uh, we need to know what the cause is, and we need to get to that underlying issue as to why it is that that person has a problem. It might be the environment that they find themselves in. It might be the fact that they are festering in boredom. It might be the fact that they are 
unemployed and they just have nothing better to do, but they want to put a smile on their face. So they're looking for something that is going to lift them up and put them into a euphoric state rather than the depressed state that they find themselves in. And COVID hasn't helped us either sure. because it's forced people into isolation and they're looking for something that is going to put a smile on their face. Might not be codeine. If codeine is not available, it will be something else. Let's deal with the actual problem of the patient's needs and identify that for them. David, I want to thank you for providing us with an overview of the Codeine Care Initiative. And to all of the listeners, if you or someone you know needs help, all relevant contact details will be linked to the podcast. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.